God gave this world to mankind, and the empires of men have grasped for power. But God has announced a new kingdom, a kingdom that reclaims this world with a new commerce, a new treasure, and a king of new life. Well, I want to welcome all of you on a rainy weekend to the Hills Church and especially those of you that watch online. I know a lot of you watch online literally around the world, uh, but some of you are watching today from West Fort Worth and South Lake and North Richmond Hills because you've got someone at your house who's sick this weekend. So wherever you are, I just need to begin with a very sincere apology. I owe my church... An apology, and here it is. I ask you to forgive me for not talking enough about money. I thought I talked about money all the time. I know I preach a sermon or two here or there. I, I put it in a point in a sermon now and then. So I just assume, well, I, I do a stewardship series every two or three years, don't I? So I checked. And it has been over ten years since I did a series on stewardship. And I'm sorry about that. Because I know how much Jesus talked about money. One-sixth of every recorded statement, one-third of all of his parables talk about money. And I have not talked enough about something Jesus talked about a lot. Pastors don't like to talk about money. Surveys say we'd rather preach a sermon on hell than preach a sermon on money. But Jesus talked about money all the time. Because he knew the use of money is the clearest indication of the place of the kingdom in a person's heart. Because the heart is always found wherever the treasure is put. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will always be. And so he talked about money a lot. He did not say, you cannot serve both God and Satan. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. Because he knew that money has the greatest potential to become our God substitute. He wasn't trying to get money out of people's pockets. He was trying to get idols out of people's hearts. Because his mission was not to make money. His mission was to make disciples. And that's the mission of this church. To grow followers of Jesus. And it's the personal mission of my life as a preacher. So I'm serious. Forgive me. For not talking to you more about money. So for four weeks we're going to do that. And it's really not going to be a stewardship series. It's going to be a discipleship series. Series, Because disciples are called to reshape their values and realign their priorities to embody the economic principles of a new kingdom. Because we've been called into a new dominion. We have a new master now. And that's why we practice kingdomnomics. 
So each week, I'm going to give you a basic principle of understanding economy from a kingdom perspective. And this is Kingdomnomics 101. God owns all. To understand from a kingdom perspective anything about money, you have to start right here. The Bible makes nothing more clear than God's absolute right to all things. Listen to David in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Listen to Moses from Deuteronomy. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Most of all, listen to God who spoke to his servant Job and said, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I want to share with you what God says in Psalm chapter 50, because it's very powerful. Notice one word especially. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. So God doesn't just say, I own the cows. God says, I own the bugs. The bugs are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Now, all of us who have been parents of small children know that one of the very first words a kid learns is mine. And the thing is, we did not teach them that word. We taught them to say daddy and mommy and Bible. They learned how to say mine on their own, which is proof of their depraved, sinful little hearts. (laughs) And so it begins very early. There is a battle to decide who the owner is. (coughs) And God claims that he has a claim on everything. In fact, the first verse of the Bible basically says, God made it so it ain't yours. And this is a top button truth. You know what I mean by that. When you're buttoning a shirt, if you mess up the top button, every other button is messed up, isn't it? So, when I say that God owns all is a top Button truth. What I mean is, if you don't get the issue of ownership right, every single thing you believe about stewardship is going to be wrong. So you take that little child and you start to disciple him or her, okay? When you take your child today from church and you leave and you look at the building, you say, this is God's building and you walk out to the parking lot and you say this is God's car 
And you go home and you pull into the garage and you say, this is God's house. And you sit down at the table and you pray and say, this is God's food. And you go into the living room and you turn on the tube and you say, this is God's TV. And you watch the Dallas Cowboys play and you say, this is God's team. And you disciple your children in Kingdomnomics 101. And here's the reality. I haven't said anything yet you disagree with or have a problem with. I'm not going to get an email from anybody at Southlake or West Fort Worth arguing with me that God owns everything. On a surface level, we all agree. And that's part of the problem. We keep it on a surface level. So we're going to get dangerous this morning. And dig a little deeper. Because there are some really powerful implications of Kingdomnomics 101. And here's the first. It means that we are not self-sufficient beings. And that's important because one of the dangers of saying mine a lot is that it fosters the myth of autonomy. So how many of you have seen that classic old movie with Jimmy Stewart called Shenandoah? Okay, if you want to go to heaven, you really need to see this movie. And there's a great scene in this movie. It's about a family during the Civil War. And the father, the head of the family, played by Jimmy Stewart, he's a widower. Not much of a church man, but he knows his deceased wife would want him to take his family to church, so he did. She know, he knows she would want him to say a prayer at the Sunday lunch, so he does. Watch this scene. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. You see what happens when God gives us the capacity to earn, it quickly becomes our propensity to take credit. And God knows this about our hearts. So, for example, when he is preparing Israel to cross the Jordan to go into the promised land, he says, it's a good land. I show favor on it. You can do very well there. But he prepares them in Deuteronomy 8. He says, you must say to yourself. Or you may say, my power and strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You see, the Bible completely rejects the idea that any of us have sufficient self-sustaining ability to exist independent Of the benevolence of God. All that we have and all that we are is derived. And when we get this, we cannot help but worship. And so I've been reading a lot of the Psalms for our million chapter challenge. And it intrigued me that the very last verse of this giant psalm book says this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. 
If you can breathe, you should be thanking God. Because that's His air you're breathing. And we never think about that. We thank God for the moments that take our breath away. We never stop to thank God that we can take a breath. It's an amazing thing. This oxygen comes into our lungs and through an immensely complicated physiological process, that air is turned into something our blood can take to parts of our body for fuel and energy. But it produces a dangerous toxin called carbon dioxide that has to be expelled. So our lungs just naturally get that carbon dioxide out of our bodies and takes in more oxygen. And we do this 23,000 times a day. And it's God's air. You just sang, it's your breath in my lungs. So we pour out our praise. And one day God will say, that's enough. No more of my air. And you will take your last breath. And the myth that you are an independent creature will be clearly exposed. And so the songbook ends, if you can breathe, praise God. When we get this, we cannot help but worship. And because we don't get it, we cannot help but worry. We worry because we think we're the owners. We worry about what's mine And how it's threatened by things we can't control. So we don't sleep well. And we won't. We'll never be free of worry until we become convicted and convinced that God owns all. That He's a good God. A benevolent God who has abundance and will keep His promise to provide for us. But that also means agreeing with God's distribution of what He owns. So the second implication of Kingdomnomics 101 is that we should not resent or resist what God wants to do with what's His. You ever notice it's often easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice? Especially if they're rejoicing about something they have that I don't have. You see, one of the implications of Kingdomnomics 101 is that envy is not really your problem with other people. It's your problem with God. You're envious because you don't approve. Of how God has distributed what is His. My mother tried to protect me from this. We weren't a family of great means when I was a boy. We drove typically older cars. And so sometimes a brand new big car would drive up next to our car. And my mom would often look over and say, I wish I had that car. And they had a better one. Because mom says, as long as you want them to have a better car, it's not coveting if you want their car. (laughs) And I think what she was really trying to do 
is to teach me to be grateful that we had a car at all. Because when you understand that God owns all, then a spirit of resentment gets replaced by a spirit of contentment. And you start to be more grateful for what you do have. And you start to be more thoughtful about why you have it in the first place. Why does God let you have this much of what's His? Certainly it wasn't to hoard it. Because God doesn't give you anything of His to hoard. God blesses you so that you can bless other people. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This is what Harvest Weekend is all about. God blesses us so that we can bless people that come to find out about and give praise and thanks to God. Kingdom people understand that God blesses our work so that we can bless God's work. So that we can partner with the work that God is doing all over the world. And when we understand this, we don't resent that we have to do it. We rejoice that we get to do it. So, Christianity is growing rapidly in South Korea. And I heard a story about some Americans who were over there visiting churches. And a missionary took them out into the country and they saw a strange sight. Here's an old man behind the handles of an old crude plow. And in front, with the straps around his shoulders, is a big, strong young man pulling the plow. And the Americans asked, and the missionary explained, well, that's the family of, and I, I couldn't pronounce the name if I tried. But the church was having a drive to build a new building. So they sold their ox... So that they could give something to the church. So now the boy pulls the plow. And typically, American response was, wow, that is such a sacrifice. And the missionary corrected them and said, they don't see it as a sacrifice. They're thankful that they had an ox to give. Because when you start to understand that God owns all... You stop thinking, now how much of my money should I give? And you start thinking, how much of God's money should I keep? Because, here's the third implication. We don't give to God as much as we return to God. And let me explain the difference with this illustration. Suppose you come to me and say, Rick, I know that you like golf and I thought I might like to find out if I like the game. But golf clubs are expensive. I'd hate to buy a set and then find out I don't like it. And I say, well, you're in luck because I just had an operation on my shoulder and doctor says I can't play for three months. So here, you borrow my clubs and you go out and play and you decide if you like the game before you invest much money in it. And after about three months, I get a phone call. Pastor Rick, wife and I were just talking about how much we love you and how much you've done for us. And we want to do something nice for you. So if you're home tomorrow, 
we would like to bring you a set of golf clubs because we know you like to play golf. What's my problem? You are not bringing me golf clubs. You are returning my golf clubs, you wicked sinner. (laughs) Do you really give something to somebody that never left their possession in the first place? And that was the principal point behind the practice in the Bible called tithing. Tithe just means tenth. And the law of Moses talks a lot about tithing, but it goes way back before Moses. Abraham tithed. And all it was was giving, or I should say returning, ten percent to God to let God know that you understood that he owned a hundred percent. And that's why tithing is never treated in the Bible as an act of generosity. It's always considered an act of obedience. The Bible never says, give the tithe. The Bible says, bring the tithe. Because over and over in the Bible you see this phrase, the tithe belongs to the Lord. That's why in Malachi, God says, you are robbing me. Now, how do you rob God? Here's what God says. You're keeping my tithe. It belongs to me. And again, it's not about giving God 10%. It's about returning 10% to let God know that you understand that God owns 100%. So, for example, Deuteronomy 14, be sure to set aside a tenth. And it goes on to mention your wine, your oil, your grain, your livestock. Why? So that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Now, let me tell you a little pastor secret. People don't like to hear about tithing. Every time I preach on tithing, I get an ugly email from somebody saying, well, that's in the Old Testament. We're under the New Testament. Stop trying to make us feel guilty. And I've never understood the logic that thinks people that don't know anything about the work of Jesus should live by a higher standard than the people that do. I have never understood how people can think law should motivate you to do more than grace does. We don't tithe because we're afraid that if we do, we won't have enough. And here's the truth. If your salary got cut by 10% next week, you would not die. This is an ownership issue. And it's between you and God. You decide in your heart 
How you're going to communicate to God that you know that He owns it all. I'm just bound as a teacher of the Bible to tell you that in the Bible, the way you do that is your tithe. Like I said, on the surface, everybody agrees that God owns it all. It's when you go deep that you find out if it's penetrated the heart or not. Because nothing has the potential to become your God substitute like money. There's a man named Bob Buford, a very successful Christian businessman that wrote a book called Halftime about that point in his life when he recognized, I want the rest of my life to matter more than the first half did. And he went to see what he called an insightful, brilliant life coach and strategic planner. And the guy drew a box on a piece of paper. And he said, Bob, when I talk to people, when I talk to CEOs, I say, what's the mainstream? What drives this organization? And then by that box, the man drew a cross on one side and a dollar sign on the other side. And he said, Bob, I've listened to you talk for two to three hours now. And here's what I can't figure out. Are you driven by Jesus Christ or by money? And if you'll tell me what goes in that box, I will be able to help you plan the rest of your life consistent with your goal. But you've got to decide what's in the box. And that was a game-changing day. Because it's not really about making money. It's about making disciples. And discipleship starts with the question of ownership. Because here's discipleship 101. Jesus owns me. He really does. That's where life as a disciple starts. I like to say that I am pre-owned. I mean by that, that God knit me together in my mother's womb. He literally made me. But then I like to say that I am tree-owned. Because in my rebellion and sin, when I turned my back on God, He pursued me in the person of Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross for my sins. God took the wrath I deserved, put it on Jesus, took the righteousness I don't deserve, and put it on me. And the Bible says now, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I am pre-owned, and I am tree-owned. And if Jesus owns me, doesn't it follow? That He owns everything I have. And that's what Jesus said in Luke 14. Those of you who do not give up everything you have. Cannot be my disciples. To give up is to surrender. And I've always been convicted by a story I heard Dr. Adrian Rogers, a well-known American pastor, tell about visiting Romania. 
You've heard me talk in the past about Joseph Tan, who was a pastor in Romania when it was under communist rule. He spent a lot of time in prison. And when the wall fell, Dr. Rogers got to visit. And he asked, and Joseph, what do you think about Christianity in America? And Joseph said, I think you American Christians are really about commitment. And Dr. Rogers said, that's good, isn't it? And Joseph says, no. Because commitment is the word you use to replace the word surrender. You like commitment because you stay in control. You can commit to going to church. You can commit to reading your Bible. You can commit to working out every day. You can commit to uh, eating better or making car payments. But you're in control. But when someone knocks your door down and points a gun at your head, you don't tell them what you're committed to. You surrender. American Christians like commitment because they get to stay in charge. But we are supposed to surrender as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender is not when you give up something. It is when you give up everything. And I hope at some level you hear me say that every week. And I'll never apologize for saying it. I'd like you to pray with me right now. Just bow your heads for a moment. What do you have trouble giving up? Surrender's not easy. It might be your money or your job, but it might be your health, your favorite hobby, your kids, your popularity, your appearance. We all have something that we just want to hold tight and say, this is mine. So why don't you take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to help you return it to its owner. Oh God, for Jesus' sake, teach us to surrender. Amen. Please stand. If you're on our prayer team upstairs or downstairs, please take your place. We offer today the gift of prayer, but we offer something else. A chance for you to offer yourself to surrender and turn ownership of your life over to Jesus. Please come. We'll baptize you even before this service is over as you give your life to the one who owns it all.